Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Product Coffee, a podcast where product management leaders share stories, advice, and thoughts on all things product over a cup of coffee. Grab a cup of joe and join us to level up your product career 30 minutes at a time. Today on the show, we have Paul Orchanian. He comes from Bain Public, kind of ex machina AI now, has been recently acquired and has had a wonderful journey through product into entrepreneurship and has a lot of great experiences to share with us. Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Let's talk a little bit about your journey through the product landscape, your professional career in tech. How did you get into the function? Explain a little bit of that. I was an engineer first. This is back in the days where people used to do uh, flash animations and I had a blog and I used to speak at events for Adobe just on the conference circuit, mainly because the blog was getting a lot of eyeballs. People were loving the innovation I was doing, a lot of experimentation. And that landed me a job in San Francisco where I worked in agencies first and eventually in companies to build software. But San Francisco is a humbling experience. I would say Silicon Valley is a humbling experience. That's where you realize that you're not that good of an engineer as you thought. I'm more of a thinker. I love playing around. I like being creative. I love solving problems. But ultimately, like when somebody tells me like, hey, we got to build this feature in three weeks, you know, that's not me. I was looking for a pivot. And at the time I had met a lot of the product managers at Adobe since I was giving a lot of conferences on Flash. I used to see them. I used to find the way they were asking me questions, inviting me to meet them at Adobe, have a beer with them and ask me a lot of questions about how I use the software. It's intriguing. It's like, what do, you, what do you guys care so much about how I use the software? And it turns out that they were doing product management. And I asked them, how do, how do you become a product manager? So I spent about a year thinking about how I could make that transition from engineering, read all the books, I got a mentor and eventually found a job at Real Gravity, which was a small startup that got acquired by Scripps Interactive to create online video players. And that was my first experience as a product manager. That was at Real Gravity, you said? Yeah, at Real Gravity. And I did everything wrong. Everything you could do wrong in product manager, I did it wrong. You know, like I tried to follow every rule that I had. I had a notebook about everything. And that's where I realized, you know what? Product management isn't about the hard skills. It really comes down to the soft skills. And being an engineer is getting into the how was so easy for me that I ended up alienating a lot of the engineers. So that was just a poor, poor, poor experience, to which points I realized that maybe I should be thinking about this differently. And the idea of being public kind of started from there, the humanistic elements, the hygiene that you need to create in the human tensions that are created in software development. And so that's the idea started there and we took it from there. That's wonderful. So now from San Francisco, how long were you there for? Oh, for about 10 years. Started in 2004, 2005, left in 2012, 13. It was a good, it was a good run. We went through a big American recession as well. So that was fun. We saw a lot of our friends lose their jobs, but it was also great to pivot myself away from engineering into product and realize the value it provides a company and how you can save a company from 
dealing with the recession. There's always ways product managers create value. So it was, it was kind of an in interesting role that I learned to discover and love and suddenly made it into a passion of mine to make sure that awareness is put to product management across all the companies. So coming back to Montreal, I realized how that function was misunderstood here. And most of the startup, we have a pretty vibrant startup yeah. scene here in Canada. And I was just like, let's go and raise awareness and help them become better product managers. I love that. So you moved from San Francisco to Montreal. Were you originally from Montreal? Yeah, originally from Montreal. Oh, so you, bounced, you went to San Francisco, then you came back. Yeah, San Francisco is such an expensive city. Eventually you realize and you got to tough it there forever. Once number two came out, two kids, you have a choice. You either move out of the, the downtown core and you commute the rest of your life or you just have to move out. Montreal is beautiful. It's a good place to move to. I'm sure you, you yeah. can't complain much, but... Well, the idea was to start a company. Here, you can do it. Whereas in San Francisco, your runway is just going to, you can't just around for three years. What makes it so unique or desirable to start a company in Montreal? It's a combination of the cost of living and the fact that there's such a vibrant startup scene here. The government has a huge input in funding local VCs, funding local accelerators that basically are pushing a lot of verticals, like AI is a huge vertical here and comes from academia. So you get a lot of AI companies that got me into product management for AI. I can't say that there is a lack of startup activity in Montreal. So it was a good place to start a company and benefit from the low cost of living and just kind of extend the runway until like we made it, right? That's awesome. But you initially didn't start Bain day one when you were in Montreal. Tell us about your journey, the move, getting into your more professional career and then kind of that shift to Bain. Funny enough, I moved to work at Edelman as a VP technology for all North America. The back of my mind, I still had product management as something I wanted to do. So I started being a product manager within Edelman, which basically meant that I was trying to build software within a company that wasn't in the business of building software. And they were all about servicing human beings and their hours to build whatever the customer was asking from them. So that basically was the first time I got into the first clash with, with the CFO and the leadership of a company that doesn't believe in anything but billing for human hours. And for me, it was all about let's build software software to make these humans a lot more efficient. It's a secret sauce of our company and we could basically create this hybrid approach of selling solutions to them. And that didn't work out. I think that created enough friction for me to just step out and say, I'm going to do this independently. And, uh, and once we started, you know, my belief at the time was product management is something that can be done similar to how marketing is done, where there is in-house people and there's also people from the outside helping you. The Valley product managers are in-house. They're sitting right next to the engineers and they're working with everybody else. So there's no point in outsourcing it. But I still believe that there are companies out there that are trying to find out how to do it better and they need the, the experts. So Bain Public kind of like started from that perspective of helping out companies and putting the processes in place of how to be product manager, because most of these companies don't even know what a product manager is, what they do, and how to even like implement one of them inside the organization. When you started Bain, did you have like an initial angel partner? How did you actually get the capital or the traction initially to get that thing in motion? Yeah, I mean, that's the beauty about having the service business. I mean, the service business is you don't have to inject any capital. As long as you have clients and you're making margin, you could survive. Nothing was put into it. It was basically bootstrapped. And I sometimes mention it, but we are a purely bootstrapped company from A to Z. Outside of the first $10 I put into the company, I never actually put anything extra. And But the idea was like hustling, hustling, finding the right type of clients, right? hustling, defining our product, hustling 
and figuring out how we're going to sell, monetize this product. And we called it soap. And it took us a while until we figured out how to basically do it at scale. A lot of people come to me today and they ask, do you have a product? And yeah, it's a bunch of services combined with a software, but ultimately I call it a product, but we can basically deliver it to seven or eight clients at once. Whereas traditionally, if I was to just keep it to a consulting business, I'd be able to do it to two clients maximum, right? There's that scalability of what we tried to do. And going back to my engineering days, it was just this tinkering of trial and error until we figured out something that worked. It sounds like all of your worlds are combining into one effort and initiative, which is now this effort, right? This engineering process, trying to make sense of things, the relationships, the services, and pulling all that together and helping others do the things that you've seen successful. I agree. You know, I meet a lot of entrepreneurs and they're like in their early 20s and they're very green, but they have this will. And I was more the opposite. I needed to go and live life and work in different places, let it be service companies or product companies, learn from my experiences and try to bring that into a package. If I bootstrapped a company past 40, I wasn't ashamed of it. I think it's harder to bootstrap a company past 40 with two kids, but you know, we did it and it worked out. I think today it's easier for me to talk to young entrepreneurs and letting them know like, it's okay to go out there and get a job. It's okay to out there and learn from others in order to bring all that back in and figure it out by yourself rather than depend on coaches, depend on mentors, depend on advisors, which is good. But sometimes there's nothing really that beats the pain of basically getting fired as a product manager because you pissed off the engineers, right? <laughs> you got to live it to, to understand it and then talk about it. Absolutely. I feel like we all have those experiences as we go along. And some of us are humble enough to learn from those experiences and makes us better. And some kind of just sit and stew and just, it's hard. It's, it's a journey, right? But I think within each of those experiences just makes you better along the way in that product journey. I love to hear those little snippets of what failed, how others failed on their path, failed up, right? It's humbling. Talk to me a little bit about how SOAP came to be and maybe also touch on what it is for the listeners. Was that day one you had it in your back pocket and you were selling it around to clients and you had this bootstrap mentality or was this something that you built up over time with them? Yeah, it got built up over time. I started the company with two clients and I soon realized that I was doing the same thing for both clients. I was just applying best practices of product management, but I was applying it in an order where I just told the clients, look, we're going to try to deliver value quarterly and we're going to make decisions on a quarterly basis on what to build next. And week number one, two, three, I'm going to basically do an analysis of the customer data of the competitors and the market and the industry and the shifts, talk to the stakeholders, gather all that. And then week four, five, six, I'm basically going to look at the technical debt and meet with the engineers, figure out what's wrong, where the problems are, look at the parking lot of ideas that came from all these other stakeholders, and then figure out what the short-term initiatives are, present back the landscape to the leadership. If they agree, then we'll basically deep dive into each one of the upcoming initiatives and figure out by week number 10 what we're going to do, and week number 12 we'll restart. I figured that big problem in product management is you read all these books and you, they give you a bunch of tricks. But the question is, as a product manager, you do not know what's the time for you to do customer research. What's the right time for you to talk to stakeholders? What's the right time for you to outbound communicate some of these? Now, oftentimes you do everything at once. You're just like, start the morning with some customer research, afternoon on data, talk to the engineers, try to groom your backlog, right? I'm just trying to be structured. So I decided to basically just put this in a 12-week process, 12 weeks being three months. And 
and cut it up into pieces that a product manager can do in a way where the leadership team can understand what to expect from the product manager on a quarterly basis. So I call that so. It's nothing crazy. It's simply a best practices put back to back. Although it's more about managing leadership expectations, right? If they don't know that you're doing a competitive study on a quarterly basis, if they don't know if that you're looking at personas, if they don't know that you're doing certain things, then they're just going to keep shoving mm. new things down your throat. So it's important for them to be aware. And the best way for them to be aware is if you do this in a meticulous way where their expectations are set. A, a CEO should know what a product manager is doing week number three into a quarter. A CEO should expect that week number six, there should be some kind of summary meeting to make sure that our short-term plans are aligned. And a leadership team should know that at week number 10, going into the next quarter, we should have a roadmap decision on the short-term initiatives, right? It ended up based about raising awareness with leaders on what to expect and making sure the sales marketing and CFOs and all the likes are aware. And soon enough, I realized that once I can manage the expectations of a leadership team, then when I'm walking inside a new company and they've never worked with a product managers before, and they've never really know what to expect with a product manager, they hired one and they fired him or that person left because they didn't know exactly how to work mm -hmm. with them. Then it's easier for me to bring in this process and say, it's a 12 week process, week one, two, three, this is what you expect, week three, four, five, this is what you expect. And then bring him along on the journey once. SOAP is basically me picking the leadership team, CEO, CFO, CMO, CRO, asking them to basically take part in a 12 week process with us where we bring in a product manager and then we do some theory awareness building as well as trying to figure out how to work together. And they usually enjoy the process because it teaches them both, you know, how them they should behave with the product manager and how they set expectation, how they communicate with the product manager. But it also sets up the product manager for success because now they feel like they're being empowered because the process is there to support their efforts rather than them having to change the culture within a company. Wow. I love these processes in the back pocket. There's processes and processes coming out every single week, it seems like, new ones. And I think yeah. they all kind of share very similar traits. None of this stuff is new. We're just kind of putting it together and kind of sharing the methodology. And the biggest thing here is the communication with executive teams of here's what we're doing. We are doing our homework. It is pretty extensive. There are a lot of steps. And just so you know, here is what those things are, right? So I love that yeah. kind of really well, proactive communication about the plan. And you know, it's funny because as product managers, one of the biggest problems we have is when we jump into a company, we get this bait and switch where we realize the culture isn't proper for product management. And now we have two jobs, do our jobs as product managers and also switching the culture of the organization if you can. And the funny thing is we all know this, you as a product manager coming into an organization and marching to the beat of a different drum will pay off. But soon enough, leadership, sales, marketing, support, and engineers will form a conga line. And that conga line is basically going to turn this unconventional approach of doing product management become a consensus that this is not how we want to operate as an organization. And soon enough, you as a product manager know that it's time for your leave. If you really look at the average time period a product manager spends in an organization, let it be in Silicon Valley or elsewhere, it's about a year. And I always wonder why. Why do we have a one-year average time span that we spend in an organization? It comes down to that conga line. Like the sales team has a lot of influence because they're the ones basically bringing in the revenue. And even though the value right. is being created by engineering and product, they're basically being perceived as the ones that are 
generating that revenue. Same goes with marketing, depends if you're a B2B Very or cool. B2C organization. They tend to kind of be the first ones to form that conga line. And once everybody joins to that, you're suddenly like ousted, right? And this just comes down to just not knowing how to work with a product manager. And everybody perceives product management as being unconventional within a company. I think it's up to us to basically just make sure that everybody else knows that ultimately these people aren't out there to deliver as many features as you want. They're out there to deliver value and help the company reach the next financial milestone. And you have to value the time they take in outlining and identifying the value producing features, discarding the rest. And you shouldn't be offended if you discard your ideas, right? And and comes down to the high human dynamics at that point. That's very interesting. It sounds like there's not really one silver bullet here in an organization when you are trying to change that culture and you have this horizon of a year to show value and then also change a culture. Like that's a lot of stuff to do in a year, especially as an IC. As you have come in with Bain and started to be leveraged in position to be that agent of change as a service, what have you found the most impactful for some of these companies that were kind of very hard-headed, right? Or just not just aware, right? That the folks that aren't attuned to the product management process was it a specific element of SOAP? Was it the process in general? Was it the communication? What was the thing that changed the minds? That's a very good question. The most impactful element is clarity. And it's it's this funny feeling you get when at the end of a prioritization meeting, all stakeholders have given consensus on what we're going to move forward with and have the honesty to say the rest we're not going to do. The first time they do that as a collective and realize the value of that clarity, it's an aha moment. It's like a drug. You're addicted. You're like, oh my God, I would love to have this level of clarity quarter after quarter. That's when we asked them like, look, this is the process. You know, the funny thing though is people tend to forget. Marketing goes back doing marketing. Sales goes back doing sales. And three weeks later, they forgot that clarity, (laughs) right? So it's a product manager's job to come back and remind them. And there's multiple ways of doing it. So you're constantly trying to provide governance to this process. So this way everybody else is behaving within the process by reminding them of the clarity they collectively achieved. But you also have to make sure that you're delivering on that value as well. So there's there's that pressure, right? But I think overseeing and providing governance over a process is a lot easier than implementing a process. When a CEO brings us in, it's making the product manager's job a lot easier because we're the ones implementing the process. But because the CEO brought us in, that we have the full buy-in of the leadership team that this is something that needs to happen and you know we're we're all going to get into this together and ultimately once they get to that clarity i usually tell them this is not agile i'm not going to be like all like biblical about it like um, you know dogmatic everybody has to stand up before for this meeting but they can basically take the process and apply it to whatever they want to do within their company the you know the only rule is you got to deliver every three months and every three months you got to figure out what you're going to do next expect your product manager to come up with some great ideas and some of the references I always make is it's like a dragon's den. I always ask them, how much does your engineering team cost you in operational expenses a quarter? And they'll be like $500,000. I'll be like, okay, great. So now the product manager is coming into dragon's den and in, they're pitching three or four ideas or three or four initiatives, right? That are coming from you anyways. And you guys have the collective responsibility of investing that $500,000 the wisest way possible. So now you guys are playing VC and the product manager is pitching. Let's turn the dynamic that way. Appreciate the initiatives that are being pitched, but collectively agree on what's going to be pitched. I think when they start realizing that the startup or product game, the product game is a deficit finance game. You take money from investors and you're trying to put it through the engineering team to produce value. 
somebody has to make the decision and it's not always the CEO and we need a proper process of investing this money. And if the company doesn't have one, then they need to consider finding as one that could be soap. It could be anything else, but they just need to have a process because else the product manager is just not really adding any value in that organization. You brought up something that was kind of interesting where you said teams tend to forget sometimes and go off in their silos. This was actually a very interesting top of mind topic on my side as well. We've had a lot of topology conversations, a lot of OKR conversations around goals and how do you structure teams and goal frameworks to actually scale and get this collaborative, we're all on board to move in a direction. Some cases we do this well, where I see a lot of companies that have cross-functional teams like engineered products working together in design, potentially an analyst or decision scientist. Mm -hmm. And then we have some teams that are truly siloed, which is like the marketing or sales arms that are completely separated from that cross-functional team. That's where we get a lot of friction, where we get alignment and then we go off, do our things. And now the department has one goal, the cross-functional team has this goal, and now they're not talking to each other, bumping up against. It's interesting that we don't learn from that enough to actually apply that across the organization. I don't think I've seen a lot of truly cross-functional teams pull in a marketer to sit on the team with you, pull in a salesperson to sit on the team with you and build together towards that common goal. And I wonder if you've seen something like that in your experience with these organizations where a process like that has worked or because there wasn't like that, that's caused more friction. I can tell you that because we enforce it, it's part of SOAP, right? Like meeting number one, we want everybody in there, right? And sometimes the CFO is wondering why why they're there. (laughs) And there's this beautiful picture of the various animals of product management. I'm sure you've seen it on social media. I think it's part of a book. I forgot which one it was. You got the rhino, the hippo, and all those guys. It comes down to the same thing, right? You want to make sure all these animals are inside the same same playing field. And now you got to make sure that there's consensus across, well, not consent to proceed from those guys. Because we enforce it and they're paying for the service, they're they're there, right? And eventually they see yeah. the benefits of, you know, having having their say within that forum and uh, being able to contribute. But ultimately, the, the thing that comes down to the product manager to eventually say, okay, we made this decision, we got this clarity, but it's still part of my job to reach out to marketing maybe two, three weeks after this decision was made and brief you guys on what you need to do in terms of campaign work to raise awareness about the upcoming features. And one of the things I always tell CEOs and and organizations is you can't wait for code complete to start planning your marketing campaign and your sales collateral and your support collateral. You need to make sure that once the decision's made and the engineers get going on the engineering work, sales needs to get going on the, the sales collateral, marketing needs to get going on the campaign work. And support needs to get going on the support work. And mm-hmm. many organizations still think that once code is complete, that's when we start, right? So we want to change that. And I always I always take Apple as a reference. I love how Apple does it because there's such an aura of secrecy in that company, right? But when they come up and they basically announce the new iPhone 14, guess what? The next day at the Apple store, you got like, you know, the banners are all changed. The iPhones have all changed. The, the salesmen can basically just, you know, tell you everything about the new phone and and the support team upstairs can basically configure it and upgrade your OS and make sure everything is working, right? And you're like, there must have been some kind of background work done at Apple to, to because they knew the iPhone 14 was coming out. So like, same thing. It's like, why should a sales, marketing and support team, you know, hang around and do whatever distracting work they do in their organization, waiting for engineers to complete and constantly blame the engineers for not delivering? Whereas they should be actually actively working on their tracks. So the product manager is not only responsible for the engineering track. 
They're also responsible for the marketing support and sales track. And how do they do that? Well, it just goes back to meeting with them and saying, what can I do to change your sales collateral or update that sales collateral? And oftentimes the, you know, the salespeople don't know how to articulate an API, right? <laughs> or they don't know how to, what, what, what this new feature is going to look like. And they need to understand how to demo it. They need to understand how to talk to it. And at that time you're spending with them, that'd be an hour meeting here, a two hour training there, it goes a long way in reminding them that decision was made, that the engineers are working on it. And maybe you can even share some work in progress with them. And it's a great opportunity for the product manager to say no, because if they were to say, hey, I just came out of a prospect meeting and they asked for this and you're like, look, guys, we're working on this. I'm here in this meeting with you, working with you on changing your sales collateral of what's to come. So maybe it's time we focus on what's to come and rather than, but I'll put that in the parking lot of ideas. And eventually next quarter, the process dictates that we go over your ideas, but not now. So I, I oftentimes what this is what I call enablement, right? Like the product manager has to go to the marketing team and says, how big is this, this launch, right? Are you guys going to do a, it's, it's a soft launch. It's a, it's a big fanfare with press releases. What can I do to contribute to the, you know, to the press release? Cause the marketers are like, well, what, you know, what you guys are telling me that this new feature is coming. How does it look like? How does it behave? What does it do? What are the benefits? What's the value? I mean, you should have all those answers anyways, but so you're basically briefing them and they're just taking your words and turning it into campaigns and all kinds of marketing collateral. So, and I, so I think it's, it's important for the product manager not to isolate themselves with the engineers, but also like be working alongside these other departments. It's hard work, right? Like going and spending two hours with marketing, two hours with thing. But so long as you have a process saying, okay, I have 12 weeks, one week, one, two, three. I got to basically look at the changing landscape and all. And within that, I'm going to have a few meetings with marketing and sales. It's a lot easier because, you know, you, you kind of have, what do I say, <clears throat> a scaffolding to how you mm. should be going about your three months. So you can always catch up if you're a little bit behind. But if, if you don't have that scaffolding and you're just trying to do it all in one day, and product management can be very overwhelming. I love the sequence there. How do you balance that sequence with the appetite and the result? Is this getting the buy-in up front on the process? I always hear this a lot in some organizations. We don't want the developers to not be busy. I feel like the product manager is always helping to make sure that they have a full plate as well as doing more of the long-term strategic work. Yeah. And there's never time quote unquote, to yeah. do the long-term strategic work. Have you encountered that a lot? Yeah. What we do is we have this name, we call them pillars. A feature is a pillar. And the reason we call it the pillar is because it's a mixture of a business case, a value for the organization, the user, OKRs, et cetera, as well as a bunch of features that could collectively create whatever value you're supposed to create. And the scope of that, that pillar, we divide it up into must-haves, nice-to-haves, and wish lists. And we get agreement with the engineers as well as other stakeholders of what those that scope is. And the funny thing is we as a collective team needs to agree on the value we're going to create, not the scope, but just the value. So when the engineers go away, we usually, we, we play this golden triangle game of you got to fix time to three months. We got to fix your engineering resource to the people you have. So the only thing that's variable is the scope. That means that if an engineer were to fall sick for a period of six weeks over a period of three months, that means that you have to reduce your scope. But how do you reduce your scope? Well, you're going to have to look into treating some features within your pillar. So the idea here is that the product manager is in this function where the commitment is for must-have scope of this particular 
particular initiative. And if time permits, they would take some nice to haves and deliver it. And somebody falls sick or something happens, then they have to renegotiate the scope within the quarter. There is sales, marketing, support, leadership should not care about the features we're delivering. They should care about the value we're delivering. Because ultimately, if you deliver 90% of that value within three months, it's much better than not delivering at all. So I try to tell product managers, never discuss scope or features with the leadership team. You only discuss value. And if you're putting your neck on the line for delivering that value, and if you can deliver on it. So if they ask, well, why aren't the engineers busy? Well, if the engineers aren't busy, I'm going to take the nice to have scope and I'm going to feed them that nice to have scope, right? If they're too busy with the must haves, we'll just keep it the must haves. And if by any chance they basically go over the nice to haves and they still have time left, then they'll go and get the wish list items for that feature. So everybody likes having more, right? Oh, we delivered not only 100% of the value, we delivered 150% of the value. Everyone's happy, right? But usually what happens, like you know, bugs arrive and a bunch of other things happen. So the engineering team ends up delivering 90% of that value. And for us, we still have to celebrate that we delivered that value. We market it, we sell it, we support it. And the 10% we didn't deliver will just be part of the next iteration where we'll do version 1.5, 1.1 1, 1, 1 of that feature, right? So it's just acknowledgement that the engineers are always busy on delivering the value, but what value they deliver and what percentage of that value that they deliver is really up to the product team working alongside them and renegotiating it. Marketing shouldn't be renegotiating the scope. Sales shouldn't be. I think it's about building capital. You know, you need sympathy capital with sport, marketing, engineering, and all these guys, and you need reputational capital. So the first one's the hardest one. They got to trust you to do it. But once you mm -hmm. build that capital, and let's say you delivered 90% of the value over three features or three pillars, now they trust you. The next quarter, they're like, what, are, what else are you going to deliver? You're like, hey, end of the quarter, I delivered on thing. I mean, uh -huh. if the iPhone 14 showed up and it was 90% of the iPhone 14, would anybody be complaining? No. I mean, it's just a little bit more work for customer support because we're going to have to do an upgrade of the OS in three uh -huh. weeks. Who cares? Right? So, you know, it's just getting the company to acknowledge that you don't deliver 100% of features. You deliver a percentage of value and whatever you can get, you get. So long as the engineers were busy doing it, everybody should be happy. So what are some common examples that you have your product teams communicate in terms of value? You mentioned the yeah. pillar being kind of like this pitch. How do they communicate yeah. the value there? Is it always like a dollar amount? Is it depending on the goal? Or? Depends on the OKR. So going back yeah. to that to Dragon's Den scenario, you have $500,000 of engineering operational expenses to spend for the next quarter. The product team is pitching these initiatives. They give you a quick summary of the value that you're about to create with that initiative, the objective that you're trying to achieve and the key results. And the key results always come down to the problems you're trying to solve, right? Like today, our customer engagement is month over month has gone down. Our churn is up to 5%. And we're realizing that our customer acquisition funnel stops at this particular step and we lose 50% of our customers there. So our, this initiative is to fix all that. And if we were to fix that, we can expect the churn to go back down or we can expect this funnel to basically filter more customers through. And that's why we call it a pillar because we, we're trying as much as possible not to talk about the scope, but really talk about the problem we're trying to solve. And then it's easier. If they make a decision that, hey, we're going to basically take this initiative and this is going to be delivered. Once it's on the way, you go back to marketing and you're like, you just got to tell the world that we're solving these problems. And it's a lot easier for the sales team to sell solutions to problems, right? It's like, hey, what's coming up with the software next, the next week? You know, the conversation with prospects. Well, 
we're basically going to upgrade our API version two and solve the following three problems because that's you know, historically has been issues with our customers. It's a lot easier for a sales team to sell that than not to have collateral to sell and try to make up new features in order to keep the customers happy and get them to sign, right? How does scaling work kind of fit within this focus? Because I've seen a lot of companies not focus enough energy on scaling where they have a diverse set of features, maybe a monolithic architecture. They're servicing clients, but it's costly, it's buggy. And then they're also trying to continue to keep the pace of innovation. How do you approach that within this framework? And within the SOAP framework, one of the things we do is we want to have this, what we call the high level strategic baseline, which is, you know, with the CEO and the leadership team, we need to understand what the strategies of this product are and various tactics that we're going to be pushing forward. And also what KPIs we're going to measure in order to make sure that the tactics are allowing us to achieve that strategy. And strategies are usually divided into three categories. You're either trying to expand your footprint, which is a complete sales effort, if you think about it. But footprint expansion means global. It also means uh, getting regulatory accreditation. It also means cross-industry, right? So what, the first strategy is footprint expansion. The second strategy is innovation. And the third strategy is optimization, right? And I always ask companies, like, look, any quarter, you're going to have to spend a third, a third, a third, right? It could be that you spend two thirds on one, one quarter, and next quarter, you spend two thirds on the other. Eventually, at the end of the year, every company is going to either innovate, expand their footprint, or create internal optimizations. So as part of the product, I, would, I call this the product mission. As part of the product mission, you're, you're basically enabling the product team to take ownership of the expansion of the product's footprint of the innovation the product's creating as well as internal optimizations. So when a product manager is pitching for that $500,000 of engineering firepower, and the first pillar that they're pitching is, no, we're gonna go global, we're gonna make this SaaS platform multilingual, we're gonna support English, Spanish, Portuguese. I get it, that's gonna allow the sales team to go and sell in those countries, awesome, right? Then the, then the next one is we're basically going to you know, create an API that's going to lock in our customers further and allow them to create their own versions of our software integrated within their tools. That is innovation, perfect. And the third initiative we're going to be pitching is going to be about us taking internal processes we have because it's very manual and it's very repetitive and we have 10 people doing it and that's increasing our customer support costs somehow. And we're basically going to create an internal tool that's going to allow this to be streamlined, reducing our and, and usually in that case, it's not about reducing the overheads, but it's about shifting the human capital from doing repetitive tasks into doing something else that benefits our customers, right? So now if you're pitching these three and, and you know, the team's like, well, these three seem to be aligned with our strategic, uh, that we've, with the strategies that we've set initially, then it, it is within the realm of the product manager to pitch, any, to pitch anything that could basically have value to the, to the, uh, to the thing. So. I often think that oftentimes we think the product manager is all about customer and engagement. I think product manager is about footprint expansion, innovation, and operationalization, which ultimately means that you're either creating features that benefits the sales team and their customer acquisition costs and sales cycle. You're either creating features that get customers to engage more with your product, or you're creating features that allow your company to make more margin or increase its, uh, its valuation. Either way, these are all value creating features and it's all within the realm of product managers. Oftentimes that's the key piece that most organizations don't understand. They usually just try to narrow you down to, you only have this SaaS, don't even touch the API, don't even touch the, the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Like 
man, if I realize that every single time we have to do a customer demo, it takes one engineer a whole day to set up this demo environment, why am I not going to propose automating it as part of a product process? You know, because one engineer a day for 10 demos a week, that's a lot of time. I love this framework here, focusing on footprint expansion, innovation, optimization. Now you have all these different product managers pitching their investments for the quarter and they're getting buy-in, mm -hmm. making trades or modifications. Do you ever see, because it's never so independent from what I've experienced, mm -hmm. where there's always a dependency on another team to get something done. Yeah. Either some teams that have horizontal vertical structures where you have like a supporting platform team that is yeah. enabling other teams. Maybe you have a data team, right? Whatever. And, and, and so how does that kind of fit within this pitch if those resources are required? What we do is we have this concept of a blueprint and everything we're talking about, by the way, has articles on our website. You can, you can read it. We have this concept of a blueprint where we, we basically map out the customer experience and from that point associate a, across every vertical of the, of the customer experience, what are the features you've built in order to, or plan to build in order to support that portion of the experience. And then we ask questions of who is the product manager responsible of this particular vertical or this, these particular you know, collection of features. So we, that allows us to map out the, the structure of who owns what. And oftentimes as we're doing SOAP, we realize that within big teams, there's, there's always like an entire vertical that has no product manager, right? Like, and oftentimes it's the one where it's the initiation of the software to customers in a B2B scenario, you always get that. The sales team asks them to initiate a bunch of modules and it's like a JSON file that an engineer has to create. And it's never, it's always been like kind of there in the, in the, in the gray zone of no product managers ever taking, you know, knows how it works, right? So by mapping it out, we're able to assign product managers to various uh, verticals and also negotiate, well, you should be taking this vertical and not that vertical, and you should be working closer to this product manager. So it really allows for that visual representation of with, you know, what part of the ecosystem does the product manager own and, and where the gaps are. So that's the first thing we do. On the week number five, every quarter we ask the product manager to look at the ecosystem that constitutes the product from end to end. And sometimes it starts with data acquisition and it ends with APIs, right? But we want to see the entire ecosystem and identify who owns what and what are the features that we've built and planning on building and supporting those areas. Because ultimately you want to be able to point on a map and tell the sales and marketing team, this is where we're going to be improving the product, right? So it ends up being a great tool to visualize the product. I call it like how the sausage is made, right? Like all the internal functions and where the improvements are. So every single feature that supports a particular piece of the customer experience, you, you want to version it, V1, right? So, and then eventually you're going to pitch V1.5, V2, V3, V4, but like there's a 500 little areas, the features that basically create this product. So the definition of a product is that it's an ecosystem of features and who owns these ecosystem of features needs to be well understood by the organization. So that's the first thing we do. And then when these product managers are pitching, they have to pitch within their own portion of their ecosystem, right? And we also know that sometimes you have this other product manager that manages that the, the modular API layer that basically constitutes the, that layer. And that is a separate type, like that's more of a technical product manager type of uh, situation. So ultimately I have to ask the CEOs, how do you hire and fire your product managers, right? And the definition to me is if a product manager owns a particular vertical within the ecosystem and quarter after quarter, they're pitching these initiatives that add zero value, you know, the, the way they're pitching this business value 
value. It just doesn't resonate with leadership. Sales team doesn't think it's important in the marketing team. And it just happens over and over and over again. Then you have to question, is this product manager digging deep enough? Right, because they own that portion of the vertical and the product's evolving, but that portion is not moving forward. And that five hundred thousand dollars is being split between other product teams, but not that team. Right. So then, then you have proof that maybe there needs to be a questioning of: Do I need a product manager for this portion of the product, or it's just it's matured, it's saturated. There's really nothing. There's no low hanging fruits anymore. Maybe that product manager needs to shift elsewhere and we don't need to put an engineering team on that portion of the product. But I think that if you were to give a product manager enough time to look at the industry, the market, the competitors, the data, you should be able to come up with value producing initiatives on a quarterly basis. Yeah. I'm, I'm so fascinated by this map, this map of the product ecosystem. So how you do this, you said was a mix of data inputs, maybe some API layers or some backend services. Like how do you, or features, right? How do you actually but go about defining this? The article pretty much breaks it down. So we try to create verticals and the way we create verticals is we believe that software is a narrative, right? You onboard the customer, you acquire the customer, you onboard them, you get them to input some data. Then uh, you basically, you know, have them, you know, use the software and eventually like the use of the software is going to output something and then there's going to be some insights generated or whatever, right? So there's always a linearity to it. So the first step is to create that linearity, which creates your verticals. Then you kind of look into the touch points. What are the individual items the customers needs to do? Or sometimes the machine in the back end needs to do for through automation or whatever to, to get to the finish line. And then at the end, we have the, what we call the technical layer ecosystem, which is what are the features that support those customer activities within the vertical? And the way we basically create them is give me the UI element first, what the customer gets to see. Then the second layer should be the business logic that you have. And the third layer would be the data layer, like the database or anything else or APIs or whatever that's happening. So usually you, and, and even if there's a third party you're working with, for example, a website is a box that interacts with a profile manager, that interacts with a payment manager, what interacts with Stripe. I mean, these are three, four different initiatives. Stripe integration is one thing. The improvement of payment managers is another. The improvement of profile managers is another. And the improvement of the website is another, right? So you could have the same team dedicated to those four features and with one product manager, but you're not going to be improving the payment manager every day. You're not going to be improving the profile manager every day. But, you know, if I look at the backlog for the profile manager, it can start with user can create a username password, V1. V2 would be users should be able to create alternate users with different roles. V3 should be users should be able to invite people from the outside as viewers, you know, and so there's an evolution of that product. And based on need, you should be able to pitch those initiatives. So by doing that, not only do we have a, a very loosey-goosey interpretation of the technical ecosystem, and CTOs don't like it because it's not really accurate, but it's, it's a good way of showing every single piece of functionality that has been built. And what we usually ask them to do is, can you tell me what other piece of functionality you still need to build in order to provide the full value for this product? And then we ask them to do this effort. And this is a fun thing to do with leadership is like, what have you built today? What are you currently working on? What are you going to be building in the next six weeks, six months, six years, which we call the 666? And suddenly they realize that 90% of the product isn't built. And then the big question I asked the CEO is, why are you selling this product? Why do you even have a sales team? How much does your sales team cost? Why are they creating so much pressures for the product team if 90% of this product hasn't been built, right? And that's, that's an existential question you, have, you get to when you realize that <clears throat> maybe you are being too aggressive. Maybe you should allow for this product to get to a certain layer of 
you know, there's nothing worse than saying we're, we have an AI product. You build the entire SaaS. You have an AI that's trained, that's giving you 40% accuracy. Every customer uses it. Every customer churns because the accuracy of the ML is really bad. And people are asking myself, where does the product suck? Well, I mean, why are you even selling <laughs> it at that point, right? What you're explaining, it seems like it's a, like a customer service blueprint. Is that right? Like using yeah, the similar yeah, model? It's, it's, I, I would call it a CX blueprint, but we intermingle a lot of automation that happens in software. And we want to at least address that in the CX. It's not always about the customer because sometimes a customer yeah. clicks something and a bunch of you know automations happen in the background before the customer sees something else. And we yeah. want to be able to represent that. So you call those processes out. Yeah, like exactly. So, so now like there's the functional and the non-functional in one image with all the features that support it. And exactly executive, especially sales support and marketing, when they get to see these types of maps, it's one pager, so it's not a huge thing to absorb. It really allows them to understand something that they maybe never understood before, that this is how this part worked, right? Like you could, you wouldn't believe the number of salespeople who go out and sell a product without really understanding how it works, right? Like, so for example, I'm trying to sell a car. Yeah. Do I know that the engine's the, 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 the element that allows the steering wheel to you know, move the tires, you know, like, do I know it? Do I need to know it? Well, you need to have a certain understanding to sell it or, or, or you're going to have a hard time selling it. It comes down to the same. The product manager has a role of educating these stakeholders on how the product is built. And maybe they don't have to spend full day explaining it, but giving him a map for them to consult is not a bad idea. I've seen that be incredibly valuable for especially like redesigns of products or just what wanting to kind of lift after just understand those pain points like you're saying. There's elements on the vertical product where this makes so much sense, right? You're serving one customer, one job maybe, or one customer suite of jobs. Maybe you have the, the feature framework that you're intermixed with. Now add the layer of complexity of like a two-sided marketplace. And then yeah, also yeah. add the layer of complexity of multiple TPMs or, you know, platforms yeah. that gets a little bit muddy. And, you know, I, we're still struggling with some of those nuances. We're making traction on it, but I think it always is a challenge where you have this kind of pivotal moment of a transaction with the two sides that you have to fully support. And that team is like the bread and butter and has a lot of context. And so there's almost like a single point of failure too. So we're trying to figure out how to spread that reliance or that complexity or that single source, right? So it's not yeah. such a critical mass, but it is essentially the business model. So you kind of have to support it. It, uh, it, it so is. It's a very it, interesting piece. You know, it's funny. It's like Marketplace is a great example because Uber, for example, a lot of people think Uber is about the app, right? And, and then it's like, there's an app for the driver and there's an app for the for the user. And you're like, yeah, no, Uber is about the, the data infrastructure, allowing people to request rides and for an algorithm to identify the right driver to get close to you to basically give it. But also it's about demand planning, demand prediction and all kinds of other things that we need to do. So Uber at its core is a 90% data company where data is flowing in for across every city of the world and they're trying to match that demand with the supply. So isolating it to the mobile app means that the marketing and sales team are constantly going to be asking for more features on the mobile app. Whereas the reality is you need to be spending 90% of your efforts on machine learning modules, data pipelines, ETLs, and all kinds of things in between, right? And and so it's it's important to 
And oftentimes people say, well, those are two separate products. We got the driver app and the mobile app. You're like, no, it's two outputs of a major ecosystem that we're building. And the marketplaces are the same, but also, you know, a lot of like the AI products are like that. You know, it always starts with you collecting data somewhere, scraping data from something. And then, you know, normalizing it, completing it, and then putting in a big, big query or some kind of like big data lake, and then taking that and training MLs and putting those MLs in front of the customer through an AI and a, and a SaaS and customer engaging with it and finally getting an output, right? Wow, that's a lot of work. And people tell me like, oh, we have three products. No, you don't have three pricing plans. It's the same product. One goes to enterprise, one goes to B2B, one goes to B2C. It's still the same pipeline of data that's basically being crunched. So you got to think about it as one big ecosystem rather than three separate products with three separate sales teams and three separate marketing teams. Right? Wow. Love it. There's some amazing things here. A lot of good nuggets. And it sounds like Bain, is that still the website where folks can no, it's check it's Bainpublic.com. Yeah. It's, Bain it's actually Bain Public in French. It's uh, It actually stands for public bath in French. Idea is about hygiene and products. You have a lot of good articles and resources there. If folks are listening to this and really want to engage with the process or the product, how would they go about that? So the articles are there. You can reach out and we'll send you an ebook. A lot of people think that we're about, you know, doing demos and whatever. You can actually schedule a demo and we'll talk about the process because we've had a lot of customers come to us and they wanted to learn how to apply soap within their company without us helping them out. And I've always pointed them out to the ebook and the articles. There's no reason why you can't do this alone, right? So I'm not in the business of trying to sell my soap to all customers. I'm in the business of raising awareness of what product management is and making sure that it's implemented the right way in most organizations. So if you want to do it self-serve and go to bainpublic.com and download all the collateral and, and try it yourself. And if you want to talk to me, you can schedule a demo and have a quick conversation on how how to go about doing it. Let's leave with a little bit of homework for our listeners this week. Based on this conversation, I'll kick things off and then I'll throw it over to you, Paul, and then you can, maybe we can close things out here. But I would say the biggest thing, at least one of the takeaways here for me is, is start to build out that ecosystem of your, of your features, of your product. It's super useful, especially when folks don't quite know how the things interact with each other, especially if it's a bigger scale product. I think going through that exercise is super valuable and will inform your strategy as you continue through the motions with products. So if I were to give one thing, I would say, look into customer service blueprints, look into CX blueprints, look at bank services around this and their mapping, get some inspiration, do it for yourself and see how that actually helps. What homework would you give to the listeners? My homework would be to ask the CEO what the strategy is and ask them what are our footprint expansion strategies, what are our innovation strategies and what are our optimization strategies and confirm that the product management function is responsible of all three. Oftentimes they'll tell you, look, we don't have, we haven't really done a reflections on that. And, and that's mm -hmm. all false because if you're a VC funded startup or a company that has a board, there's always boards presentations that are done quarterly with all of this information in it anyways. So it's, you can just ask your CEO, can you give me access to that board presentation or some of the few slides, because I'm just going to need it in order to, you know, figure out what the strategy is for this organization baseline it with them, revisit it on a quarterly basis. It's definitely going to help you propose initiatives that are aligned with the company strategies. Thanks again, Paul, for spending an hour with us. And I know our listeners will really appreciate it. And it looks like we finished up our coffee. So go level up. This has been Product Coffee, produced and engineered by me, Kevin Gentry. 
Through our podcast partner, Anchor, you can now record a voice message and send us ideas or topics to cover, and who knows, we might end up playing it on the show. You can also become a supporter of Product Coffee by contributing a monthly donation to help us sustain future episodes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to Product Coffee on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.